Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. When actors receive a script or a play, or, or for a film or play, they, they read it through many, many, many times to see how it fits together. They want to study it to end, they want to enter it. And they want to get a feel for the characters in the larger story. They allow their imaginations to absolutely run wild through every single scenario and various other scenarios. Um, and also to um, think about how the different characters are going to be interacting with each other. What is the history that different characters have? What are the conversations and the interactions that are going to come from this? And what kind of attitudes do each of them have towards each other? The actors develop this sense of how these characters relate to one another so they can each fully enter into the drama and perform it so effectively. And what does that have to do with us here today? Absolutely nothing. Unless any of us in this room have made the conscious decision to enter through a narrow gate into an ongoing drama where we, knowing our role, step into being Act 5 people, the new community, the new family of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Last week we started this series, the fifth act, and I think I've got a slide up which actually shows the five different acts um, that, um, that, that Scripture actually kind of plays. As you go through the story of God from Genesis, you find that Act 1 is all about creation, that God creates a beautiful, wonderful new world, and He actually entrusts the stewardship and actually pushing forth His shalom to these people, humans, you and me. He actually shares His ruling. He shares His reigning with humanity. That's what it means to actually live the glory of God. You know how Paul says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Have you ever wondered what that glory is? That glory is that we actually reflect the shalom, the, steward, the good stewardship and, and, and the image of God out into this world. That's, what the, that's the glory that's been lost. And that's the glory that has now been returned to us if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that we can now once again step into that original vocation as image bearers of God. But then we have the fall, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Um, everything goes terribly, terribly wrong. You know, you give a whole bunch of people a lot of freedom and um, guess what? Things can go really, really good or really, really bad. And guess what? Things went really, really bad. And after act number two comes act three, which is the story of Israel. It's the call of Abraham. And Abraham becomes a nation, a nation in Egypt. And, and then we have the mighty exodus that happens. And, and that's part of the grand narrative as well. And after the story of Israel, act four bursts into the scene. And we've spent a lot of time in act four, the story of Jesus. But then as the Gospels come to an end, you really get a sense that this story is not complete. In fact, as you, you transfer from the end of, uh, of the Gospels into the beginning of the book of Acts, you kind of understand, wait a minute, this story is actually still going on and it's still going on right now. And that is what Act 5 is. And that is the contention and that is the idea as we're journeying into this short little series that we are to understand, recognize that we are to actually play our part as Act 5 people. Act 5 is currently in play. And we said that in order to be faithful Act 5 people, it requires two fundamental things. The first thing it requires is that we actually have a working knowledge of Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 and Act 4. Because that's actually where the story of God has actually been revealed to us. If we're going to continue the story which has already started, we need to understand how this story is going. 
You know, it's not no point actually having a, a storyline that goes up into this bit and like, you know what, today we're going to start a brand new story. It doesn't work that way. And the second thing we need to understand is that in order to be faithful Act 5 people, there's going to have to be a different approach in a lot of ways. We're going to have to do a fair bit of improvisation. Does anyone like improvising? Yes. Yep, you do? We are far out. A lot of us don't like improvising, you know? We were saying, like, like, like last week, one of the observations I've made when it comes to a lot of Christians, Christians love to be told what to think. We, we don't necessarily understand the concept of learning how to think. But when it comes to improvisation and living faithfully as Act 5 people, it's more of an issue that we need to learn how to think. Because there are situations and there are scenarios in 2021 that did not exist 10 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. And that is actually the opportunity and the freedom and, and the risk that's kind of afforded to us. But as we get to know the story of God and delve into it in greater measure, then we have a greater opportunity and a greater chance of actually living this life faithfully as, as people improvising faithfully. Because there are new tasks to be undertaken. Amen? New tasks. Have you, have you, um, have you, um, did you hear about Facebook's announcement about the metaverse this week? You know where my mind went? So Google's doing the same thing. So they're going to create this virtual universe, basically. So what does that mean for Christian discipleship? So there are some things that obviously are not permissible out here in this real world, but what happens when we enter into a virtual world? There's a lot of ethical issues. I trust, trust me, the Apostle Paul, in his wildest imagination, never ever considered a metaverse. But these are realities that are about to come they're on our doorstep, which means we need a whole bunch of improvisation because the scenarios and situations that we're stepping into 2021, they are vastly different to even when I was a teenager. I thought that was like an intriguing little concept and obviously they've announced it, so they're already well on their way of creating it. Was anyone else intrigued with that announcement or just me? Did you guys know that their announcement? Anyway, everyone's like, no, Facebook's the devil. And I was like, well, it may well be. <laughs> But there are going to be new scenes that need to be explored all the time, all whilst we are actually remaining faithful. At the end of the Gospels, as they close, Act 5 opens up. So as Act 4 closes, the Gospels, Act 5 commences. And it commences like this. I'm just going to read this in your hearing from Acts 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about... all. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? 
He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Very interesting that this fifth act actually begins as Luke's kind of writing everything that Jesus began to do. Everything that he began to teach. Implication that what Jesus began to do is now continuing on today through the church. That's a big implication. Another implication is that there's been a gift that's been given, the Holy Spirit. You will receive power. I think another big implication that allows, which a lot of us get lost in, is that the disciples come around Jesus and says, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is it the end now? And Jesus says, that's none of your business. Go speak to all the prophets right now. And maybe we should return say, like, everything you're saying right now, that's that. Jesus said, that's none of your business. How this ends, that's up to God. But what Jesus says, I'm talking about right now, you're going to receive power so you can be a faithful witness right now. And we dare not get caught up in all these kind of things that are happening. We don't know. And we get so distracted by being faithful witnesses because we just get caught up in that. The church has this task of faithful improvisation. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that we are God's masterpiece. We're his pole. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Tom Wright said yesterday that we are God's poetry. We are to be poetic creatures improvising to take this act forward to the place that the scriptures point us to go. So we get a bit of a glimpse of how the fifth act begins. This is how the fifth act begins. Almost like Ephesians 2.10 is kind of like our job description. We are to be these poetic creatures improvising faithfully in this world. And we get little sketches about how the fifth act is going to end. We don't get a lot. We get a couple of sketches. One sketch is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 to 26. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, Then the, church, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So today we are living somewhere in the middle of the beginning of Act Number Five and the end of Act Number Five. We can read about how it began, we've got sketches about how it ends. But we can't speculate too much because Jesus said, how it ends, that's actually not none of your business. But what we are to do right now is to be faithful in improvising the story, the drama of God right here, right now. In particular, we need to be faithful in improvising because the world today is so drastically different to the world of even a couple of years ago. So when Luke pointedly actually says that the formal work that he wrote, that being the Gospel of Luke, was of the story of what Jesus began to do and what Jesus began to teach. And in turn, that fourth act gives birth to this fifth act that we're now in. We are now able to see Scripture as an unfinished drama, which contains its own impetus, its own forward moment, uh, movement, which demands to be concluded in a proper 
manner. And again, as I said before, when actors get a script of a film, of a play, they start entering it, they start studying it, and they want to know what are the different characters that are involved in this greater story. And today I want to touch on, because I can't go deeply into it, I want to talk about some of the characters that are in play in your life, in my life, in the life of New Spring Church, because living as Act 5 people right now, we just need to understand and recognize and really come to terms that the church today lives, breathes, and functions in contested spaces. Contested spaces. There are characters on stage that we can't necessarily see, but they certainly have an effect. And we need to kind of understand a bit of what they're doing. So the implication of these characters, which I want to touch on today, leaves us in a position where I'm really just giving one big idea for every single person to really think about. And you can't really outwork this stuff in the room today. You're going to have to go away, you're going to have to pray, talk to your spouse, talk to your kids, and actually really start to outwork this stuff. But the big idea is this, shape or be shaped. Shape or be shaped. Modern day myth, self-autonomy and ultimate freedom. Right now, as we stand, people who live in countries like Australia are being confronted with this promise, which turns out to be a myth, that I can do whatever I want. The vision of humanity given by our secular age is ultimate freedom and self-autonomy. And it's rattling us. And funnily enough, it's rattling Christians, the same Christians who profess, I died with Christ, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, love your neighbor, love your enemy. And it begs the question, over the last couple of decades, what exactly has been discipling the Christian imagination that we too are getting a little bit, uh, when we actually pledge allegiance to another king? See, ultimate freedom and self-autonomy has never kind of like bowed anything in my life because at the end of the day, the final authority in my life is a king named Jesus. But we are, it's, it's jarring us a little bit. But that actually is a myth. And it's not just a myth that Christians talk about. It's a myth that, that, that philosophy talks about. Because the idea of ultimate freedom and self-autonomy it's actually, it's, it's a lie, it's a myth, because as humans, we are continually being shaped. Think about your life. Are you, are, are you not a lot different today than what you were five years ago? You've been shaped. Things happen, forces come, and, and it changes you, it shifts you. You're not the same today as you were last, this time last year. We get shaped. How are we shaped? Well, I think one of the most misthought, well, how should I put this? One thing that shapes us significantly, which we do not think about, are liturgies. Liturgies shape us. What are liturgies? Liturgies are the habits, whether that be religious or secular, but the habits that we engage in daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. Liturgies. We all engage in liturgies. And liturgies actually shape us. Liturgies really do. They shape what we do. They shape how we think. These habitual practices that are performed daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, 
James K.A. Smith says this about liturgies. He says, Our loves and imaginations are conscripted by all sorts of liturgies that are loaded with a vision of the good life. We do things because they promise us a good life, whatever that good life is. To be immersed in these secular liturgies is to be habituated to long for what they promise, right? And that's what we do. So liturgies are daily, weekly, monthly habits of our lives where we take our goods to a temple and we offer our goods to a God and we expect to receive something in return in line with the promise of the good life, whatever that good life is, that is promised. And we as humans, we take our liturgical practices every day. So it doesn't matter what temple we go to, whether that temple be Woolworths, whether that temple be Optus Stadium, whether that temple be New Spring Church, whether that temple be the beauty shop, the bar, returning um, to an algorithmic pathway that um, confirms our ideologies on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. And sometimes you, you ask the question, like, why does, the Western, why does Western Christianity look very similar to the rest of the world? Well, I think possibly one reason why our Western Christianity looks so similar to the rest of the world is because generally we don't really think about our liturgical practices and how they are shaping us, or we don't critique what kind of good life they are promising. We got a little bit deep, didn't we? As followers of Jesus, we embody so often far more secular liturgical practices than religious ones, and we don't realize that all liturgy shapes us. All liturgy shapes us. Now, in saying that, this is not an invitation for us to make a commune and escape the world. We are not doing that. This is not what this is about. Last week, I challenged all of us that we need to be Christians who think deeply, okay? This is not an excuse for you to escape the world. Rather, this is, it should be a reminder that we need to think, rethink, and critique the things that we actually habitually do because they ultimately do shape us, they do shape our family. It's an opportunity to think deeply about our daily, weekly, monthly and yearly liturgical practices that are shaping our minds and our hearts. And in saying this, I want to talk about some things that are in play on the cosmic stage in Acts chapter 5 that shape us. And um, we simply need to think about these forces and be very aware that they are there. And the things which we're going to talk about today, they are commonly taught and read and known about in the academic world, but for some reason we don't necessarily talk about this stuff too well in the Christian church context, or if we do in a Christian church context, we become spooky-pooky, weird little Christians. Next week we're in Grovelands, the week after we're going to talk about how we take on postures to engage these characters and not be weird little spooky-pooky Christians, but biblically live a life of freedom in this world. Okay? Scripture continually mentions these mysterious characters that are in play, who we don't see but have a huge impact on the world. The sketches of the end of um, Act 5, which I mentioned before, even mentions them. So I'll, I'll just read that scripture again. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 to 26. 
Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, that's being Jesus, after he, again Jesus, has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul uses this language throughout Scripture. In fact, there's this language that is found in the Old Testament and New Testament that, that we, we read, but very often we just read past. Jesus himself talks about these mysterious characters very, very often. But he will actually talk about unseen characters, that being Paul in play, by using wording like powers and authorities. Have you read that in Scripture? He talks about powers and authorities and dominions. Last year, in fact, we actually uh, were introduced to these powers and authorities as we went through Ephesians. Ephesians 1 verse 20 to 21, the power is the same power as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms, get this, far above, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. So Christ was raised, but he was raised above these powers and these authorities and these dominions. There are other characters that are on stage that we are very often unaware of. And more often than not, they are allowed to shape us in dehumanizing ways simply because we don't think about how we are living in this fifth act. Our greatest offense and our greatest defense is to think about how our practices, how things are shaping us. But very often, if you're anything like me, I go about my day, it's so busy, days just slip on by, and I can come to the end of the week very often and I haven't even thought about how that activity shaped me, how that shaped me, how that shaped me, and how that shaped me. And very, very often, these characters, they are actually allowed to shape us because we don't think deeply about it. Scripture says that we are to work at our salvation with fear and trembling, doesn't it? In Philippians 2 verse 12. I think that when, when Paul's talking about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, what he's really talking about, a large part of it is that we need to think about it. Think about your salvation. Think about what it means to be improvising this fifth act right now. What does it mean? What are the characters in play? Are they affecting us? Are they shaping us? How are we living in accordance to the gospel? How are we living in accordance to the Sermon on the Mount when it comes to this? We simply don't take the time individually or as family units of working out our salvation. And remember, the big idea for today is shape or be shaped. To the best of my ability, I want to engage in practices that shape me towards Christ-likeness. But if I'm not intentional in engaging in liturgies that shape me towards Christ-likeness, I will be shaped in another way. That's kind of what we're talking about today. Early Jewish imagination. In the imagination of Jesus and the apostles, not only was there a rebellion on earth in the garden, and situated in Eden, Genesis 3, but in their understanding of the world and how it worked, there was another rebellion which was situated in the heavenlies. That means 
that the enslavement and chaos of sin is far deeper, far more expansive, and far more complicated than any of us could possibly imagine. And it's with that imagination that our New Testament only makes sense. Listen to this scripture from Colossians 1, verse 19 to 20. Verse 19 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself whether things on heaven or things, or things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So what Jesus has achieved does not just bring reconciliation to us on earth. There is a heavenly dynamic which he has had to address as well. I think that's another scripture that you can easily just read past. Say, oh, that makes no sense to me. I'll read on. But this is actually something that, happen, that is seen throughout Scripture. And just as the Most High God had created a family on earth, He also created a family in the heavenlies, and their responsibility was similar to that of Adam and Eve. God creates this beautiful garden, and in the garden it is beautiful, it is flourishing. It is this temple. He places Adam and Eve in this garden and he says, now you are to push out this new creation out into the rest of the world. And that is actually pushing out God's justice, God's shalom. That was the vocation that was given to Adam and Eve. And just as he gave that vocation to his earthly family, he gives a similar vocation to his heavenly family where they too were supposed to administrate his justice and his shalom. In the same sense where there was a rebellion on earth, there was also a rebellion in heaven. Genesis 6, verse 1 to 4, um, articulates a bit of a description of, of some things that kind of happened in the heavenlies. And this, again, is a really obscure kind of um, verse as well. Genesis 6, verse 1 to 4, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human were, humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. In Jewish tradition, their imagination they saw and their interpretation was that these sons of God were these, co these sons of God were cosmic rulers that had originally been given authority over creation to rule on God's behalf. God had designed a separation between the sphere of human life and the sphere of the angelic realm, and there was a breach that happened. And in some mysterious way, these, these, they, these cosmic rulers, they looked at these daughters of men with lust and in some mysterious way incarnated human bodies and grabbed for themselves something that did not belong to them. They looked on women as objects to be used for the sat satisfaction of their own sensual and selfish desires. And these characters, the powers and authorities who were originally created to play a legitimate role within creation, overseeing the social, cultural, and political aspects of national life and for shalom, they, like humanity, they rebelled. Which means that this problem of evil is greater than we could possibly imagine. The world and humanity had become so dominated by these personal, 
superhuman figures of evil, so that this is indeed called the present evil age. You notice that in Paul's writings, Galatians and other places, he calls this age this present evil age. So they have rebelled and now they foster the enslaving character of this present evil age, cultivating destructive patterns inherent in it. These fallen characters, they no longer carry their commission properly. They no longer rule and reign to foster God's shalom. They no longer rule on behalf of God, but have become absolutely dominating and um, in their appointed realms. So here's the issue. If Ephesians 2 verse 10 is to be our job description as we improvise in this world, for we are God's masterpiece, you know, created in you in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago, that we are God's poetry, that we are supposed to poetically improvise and live out this grand drama. Guess what? The principalities and the powers, they are doing everything they possibly can to stop us from doing it. And a lot of times we don't even know they're affecting us. I think that's the issue. Sounds pretty dire, doesn't it? Does it sound like pretty heavy? Does it sound a little bit hopeless? Sounds like it's a big problem, right? Hence needing a big solution. Well, there is very, very good news for Acts 5 people. Colossians 2, further on, 2 verse 13 to 15. When you were dead in your sins and the circumcision of your flesh... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave, all, he forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. The victory of Christ has done so many things, and one of the big things it's done, it has disarmed these powers and these authorities, which is good news. Can I get at least a little amen? Right? It's good, isn't it? And even think about it. Like, as Paul is going from, from um, region to region, he's going to Gentile places. Now, back in the first century, they were very, very much aware of of gods and deities. They worshipped them. They sacrificed to them. This was part of their life. They, 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 they're not like us Western people and we think that's all rubbish until we come face to face with actual evil. And then we say, wait a minute, that's evil and we can actually call it. But for the most part, we've numbed ourselves from this reality. But they had their every, like, every day. And, and as Paul goes and he's sharing the gospel, you can understand they're backtracking and they're actually saying, wait a minute, Wait a minute, if we, if, we, if we serve Jesus as God, if Jesus is God, if Jesus is King, all of these other deities, they're going to be really ticked off with us. And, and, and the reason why we offer them sacrifices is so that they actually provide things for us. So Paul says, you don't need to worry about that because what Christ accomplished on the cross, he has disarmed all of these other deities, so you don't need to worry about it. This is the story of the Bible, okay? I mean, seriously, like, the, these scriptures make no sense unless we go back to the beginning and understand that this problem of sin and evil and chaos and disorder, this is more than, oh, you know what, Dylan last night, he just did something really naughty. <laughs> there is forgiveness for sin, isn't it? 
but we are also given power for sin. It lets us know that there actually is this thing of forgiveness which is needed to us, but we are engaged in a world where these dehumanizing ideologies and practices, they are ensnaring all of humanity, and somewhere in the midst of that, we're called to live as free people, so now we have power for sin as well. Okay? So, like, even then, I felt like there was a bit of relief in the, in the, build, in the building. It's like, phew, yeah, he's disarmed all this. Phew. But there is a big problem. There's a huge problem. And I think there's a problem in the church in the West at the moment. And the big problem is this, is that we generally don't think about liturgies. We don't think about the habits that we engage in on a daily, weekly, monthly, or yearly um, routine. We don't think about them. We honestly do not think that the habits and the rhythms of our life are shaping us. We don't think that they're shaping our children, but they are. The modern-day myth of self-autonomy is a lie. It doesn't exist. We know that. Well, I hope we do. In fact, behind these dehumanizing ideologies and social patterns are these characters, these powers and these authorities. They are still in play and they are affecting and they are menacing the world in dehumanizing ways. And a lot of the time, we as Christians are unaware of that. Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 13. I told you we're covering a lot today, didn't I? You're going to have to listen to the podcast. Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Everyone say devil's schemes. Okay, so there's still something in play. All right? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. There we go. Against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I'm actually not making this stuff up. (laughs) Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. So here is the issue for Act 5 people. The devil is still scheming. That's the issue. Now, the problem of evil and sin in this world is a big issue. You go to Genesis 3, Genesis 6, then if you, we didn't have time, but if you go to Genesis 11 and you unpack that whole Tower of Babel kind of incident, there's this huge stuff that is happening. And as you read through Israel's story, as you read through all of this stuff, you see, wow, the problem of evil is actually a big thing. Step outside, go down the street and look at people and just watch them and say, wow, the problem of evil, the problem of dehumanization is really, really big. Praise God, we are now part of the family of God and we live in a reality where those principalities, those powers, those dominions have been disarmed, but the devil is still scheming. He is tempting through ideologies and social practices that we do not think about. 
And the reason why he is scheming is because he is trying to stop us from stepping right back into our original God-ordained, kingly, priestly, prophetic vocation to be image bearers in this world. There is a huge issue in the Western church because a lot of our practices looks exactly like the world. Because we're not thinking about it. And that's simply all I'm asking for today. That we would understand and recognize that there are different characters in play on the stage. That there are things that are impacting your world right now. And you may be thinking, why in the world is this happening? Why do I feel like this? It seems like everything is coming against me. And I just need you to know that there are things in play which you cannot see right now. And that is not to be scared of it. Because those powers have been disarmed. They have absolutely no authority in your life if you're an Act 5 person, if you're a child of God. They have no authority unless you have given it over to them. And if you have given it over to them, we'll stand up and take it back. Show a bit of backbone. Get into the Word. Stand up. And say, okay, 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 okay. I'm going to take my authority back. And one great way of taking your authority back is to actually come together with your family, with your wife, sit down and say, okay, what are the practices we're engaged with right now? Because behind some of those practices, we need to actually be a little bit critical here. Behind some of those practices, behind some of that stuff we're watching, behind some of that stuff that we're going to, behind some of those things we're engaging with, there are ideologies and there are social things which are dehumanizing and that is the principalities and the powers scheming against us. And instead of living this life of freedom, we are fully enslaved because we're not thinking about the liturgical habits of our life. Why is it? Christians, we engage in far more secular liturgy than religious. And then we wonder why Christianity is not working. No, we're not working. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. This is not, like, like, it, it's, it's a thinking thing, you see. We talk about, like, do not be conformed to the pattern of this present evil age, but be transformed by... The renewing of your mind. I need to think about this. I need to think about this. If you're a young married couple, if you're getting married, now is a brilliant time to think about this. What do we want our life to stand for? What do we want our marriage to stand for? Like, like how do we want to live? What, what are the practices that we're going to put in place? And understand that as you put the practices in place, there is going to be temptation to pull that away. The amount of people every single year, Dave, this year we're going to come to church every single week. They weren't good for like a month. I can think of one person right now I've not seen in three years. Because as soon as we decide to make a stand, guess what? Principalities, powers, the Satan, he's looking to pull that away. So this is not like a, a, a message of like, like um, escape from the world. No, 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 no. This is like adding on to this fifth act kind of the, the idea that as followers of Jesus Christ, in order to be faithful, to improvise well, we're going to have to think about it. I can do what I can do, you know. 
I mean, like, you guys know, I, like, seriously, like, we do get in, like, we get in each other's faces a bit, don't we? Like, we open up scripture and sometimes it's like, oh, and other times it's like, yeah. The church is getting played and we're getting distracted. Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities of... <laughs> this is what I, I think is so hilarious. Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities and sometimes I think as a church, we're just rearming them. <laughs> and the way that we rearm them is like we are divided, we're fighting, <laughs> we create enemies, we become tribal, we refuse to gather together. It's almost like the work of Jesus on the cross this theological idea of Christus Victor, that the victory of God happened on the cross, where these principalities, these powers have been defeated. It's like, it's like these principalities and powers have been disarmed, and then we as a church in 2021, we're like handing over the bombs. There you go. Oh, you need more armory? Oh, here's some more armory. And I think it just means that we need to think a little bit more. Verse 12 of Ephesians 6 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Oh, how about that? Is anyone a little bit like vehement towards people at the moment? Guess what? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Can I get some kind of amen? amen. It's not against flesh and blood. But it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. How often do we get distracted because we think, oh no, you're my enemy now and you're, I mean, I'm the same. And I need to be reminded over and over again, Dave, that person is not your enemy. <laughs> no, no, no. There's actually stuff that's happened behind it. So the big idea, shape or be shaped. Liturgy shapes. Liturgy, religious liturgy, is supposed to be a disruption. Even the idea of Sabbath, you notice we've talked about this a bit. The Ten Commandments are given a couple of times. The first time Sabbath is given in relation to creation, the rhythm of creation. On the seventh day, God rested. Second time it's given in Deuteronomy, Sabbath is given in terms of slavery. Where Pharaoh said to God's people, you do not have time to worship your God. You will work. Where Pharaoh says to God's people, you will give me more product with less um, resource. Very poignant for this day. And we live in a world where slavery has trapped us and we're just going along the motions. But the idea that every single week we stop is a disruption. And it brings freedom. Like I said about tithing. I don't want to bring my money. This is actually about our trust in God or our trust in Mammon. That's actually what it's about. But these liturgies that are part of our tradition, they are all about disrupting disrupting these things in this world. So shape or be shaped. Parents, I want to encourage you, especially in this world of technology, and as I kind of started looking at today, this is going to expand into a metaverse, whatever those metaverses are. It's almost like WALL-E. You enter into this, you know, 
parents, how are we going to structure our weeks so that our children are shaped? I want to be involved in the shaping of Jackson and Kayla. I do not want to leave that shaping to the world. I want to be part of that to the best of my ability. Amen. All right. Next session, we're going to be talking about postures of how we actually live this free life. Um, so like I said, this is a three-week series. To be honest, I could go on for a lot more, but I'm really hoping. I know that was really deep. I apologize for that in part. That was the best way I could think of actually articulating that, but I just want us to understand that there are different characters in play. This idea of the fifth act, that we're now on the stage and now it's our turn and what a privilege it is. But there are things in play that we cannot see and they have an effect. And so often we allow them to shape us because we simply do not think deeply enough about the liturgical practices and habits that we are part of. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, my encouragement is to go away, think, pray, talk with your spouse, talk with your kids and say, as far as the ordering of our life, we're now going to be doing it this way so that we can be shaped to be a more faithful um, witness in this world. Is that okay? Let me pray for you and then we can go and have some coffee.